Jonah chapter 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to light the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How could you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he'll pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew passed lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused a terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as a culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? And Jonah answered. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, but he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, What should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said. It will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. The Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you have sent the storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea. And the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. And all the people said, I am Jonah. Appreciate that reminder of the adventure that we see in the book of Jonah in chapter number one. So I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn to page 657, and you would find yourself at Jonah chapter one. A number of years ago, there was a fairly famous poem written by Francis Thompson, who was an English poet around the turn of the last century, and the name of that poem was The Hound of Heaven. And part of that poem goes this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. The hound of heaven. Somehow we think we can hide from him. In the 1930s, in Russia, Stalin ordered a purge 
of all Bibles from the culture. In fact, there was a cut down on all of those who were followers of Jesus Christ. In one particular town, Stavropol, Russia, that order was carried out with an incredible vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated, and a multitude of believers were sent to the Gulag prison camps, where most died unjustly, having been condemned as enemies of the state. Decades later, the commission was sent to Russia, in particular to the city of Stavropol. And as they came, the city's history really wasn't known to them. But when the team was having difficulty getting Bibles shipped to Stavropol from Moscow, someone mentioned the existence of a warehouse outside the town where these confiscated Bibles had been stored since Stalin's day. And after praying extensively over that, one member of the team finally mustered up the courage to go to the warehouse and to ask the officials if the Bibles were still there. Sure enough, they were. And then they asked if the Bibles could be removed and distributed again to the people of Stavropol, and the answer was yes. So the next day, the commission team returned with a truck, and they hired several local Russian people to help load the Bibles. One helper was a young man, a college student, a skeptical, hostile, agnostic who had come only to participate because of the money that they were paying. And as they were loading the Bibles, one team member noticed that this young college student had disappeared. Eventually, they found him in a corner of the warehouse, weeping. See, he had slipped away from the group, hoping to steal a Bible for himself. What he did not know was that he was being pursued by the hound of heaven. And what he found shook him to the core. The inside page of the Bible that he had picked up to steal had the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It had been her personal Bible, and out of the thousands of the Bibles still left in the warehouse, he stole the very one belonging to his grandmother, who was a woman who throughout her entire life had been persecuted for her faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder he was weeping. God had powerfully and yet tenderly made himself known to this young man. And thus he had a divinely appointed meeting with the sovereign Lord of the universe, the hound of heaven, who had actually tracked him down to a warehouse in Stavropol, Russia. That hound of heaven is active in the book of Jonah. And that hound of heaven is active today. And that hound of heaven will always track us down wherever we may be hiding from him. Now, we have begun a study of the book of Jonah, which we have subtitled The God of Second Chances. And we have said the tradition is that as Jonah is read, that the people would say, we are Jonah, because indeed we are. This is not just a story about a guy who lived a long time ago. This is really a story about ourselves. And you remember that Jonah is given a commission, and that commission is to go to Nineveh. And the reason why he was given that commission is because Jonah and the people of God are called to be light to the world, even to the wicked. 
even to those we would rather see condemned than converted. But I want to remind you that as he receives that commission to go to Nineveh, basically what Jonah does is he goes off in the opposite direction. Instead of heading to the north and the east, he goes to the west. He's running in the opposite direction from the commission of God. And we began to see last time that the path of disobedience spirals downward. But even when we're on that downward spiral, the hound of heaven is on our trail. Now, today's plan, as we come to chapter 1, is we're really going to look at two different threads that are interwoven throughout the chapter. One thread is the thread of Jonah's downward plunge, and we're going to see that his poor choices lead to some passive indifference in his life, and that in turn leads to some personal despair. But another thread we're going to see woven through the chapter is the thread of God's dogged pursuit. The hound of heaven keeps pursuing. And God is going to bring a storm into Jonah's life. And there are lessons to be learned within the storm. But the aim of God in his pursuit and the storm that he brings is not a punishing, punitive one. Rather, it is a restorative one. So we're going to see those two threads, Jonah's downward plunge and God's dogged pursuit, But let's begin with the thread of Jonah's downward plunge. Look again at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish and paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now the first thing I want you to notice are the choices that Jonah made. Jonah did not accidentally end up at Joppa. Jonah did not accidentally pay for a ticket to get on the ship to Tarshish. Jonah did not accidentally board the ship that was on its way to Tarshish. And men and women, we need to remember that sin doesn't just happen. We make choices when we sin. And one of the things I was taught a number of years ago that has meant a lot to me is to remember this. The choices you make, make you. The choices you make, make you. And so he makes these choices, and then the hound of heaven goes to work. And look what it says in verse 4. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. The ship was out on the sea. We're not really sure which sea that would have been. It could have been the Mediterranean Sea, which was the immediate body of water. But remember, we said last time that it's even possible that Tarshish could have been way beyond that. It could have been way out into the Atlantic and even around the Horn of Africa. We're not exactly sure where this part of the scene takes place, but somewhere on the sea. And then there's just some colorful language used here. It says in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And and the word hurled occurs four times in this chapter. Here in this verse, also in in, uh, verse 5 and in verse 12 and in verse 15, sometimes it's translated throw, but it's just the word hurl. And often... When we travel the wrong way, God will bring a storm 
into our life. See, we cannot run from God. He will do what is necessary to get our attention and bring us to our needs. So he hurls a great wind, throws it out there on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, and the ship was about to break up. And, and it's hard to really get into this, but you have to feel a little bit of what was happening. You have to imagine, if you would, the roar of the wind and the waves that are just dashing over the ship and the creaking of the planks as it begins to twist and turn in the storm. And then it says in verse 5, then the sailors became afraid. Now that's actually a pretty amazing statement. And the reason why is, remember that the ships to Tarshish were going to the most farthest known city of the time. And it says in the Bible that they would come every three years, come and go, which indicates a year and a half trip out and a year and a half trip back. Now, when you're on that kind of a voyage, you have on that ship, the ships to Tarshish, the most experienced, the most veteran, the strongest kind of crew that is possible. It is the toughest voyage there could ever be. And so these men, these sailors, had seen many storms. I can just try to imagine when you travel and buy a boat for a year and a half, how many storms you would go through. They'd seen plenty of them. But this one was bad. This was bad. And they became afraid. And it says there in verse 5, Every man cried to his God. I want you to notice there were no exceptions there. Tough experienced sailors, and every one of them cried to his God. There was an impromptu ecumenical prayer service that began to happen on the ship. And, and, and because it was a, the kind of a crew that would go to multiple ports, no doubt, these crew members came from many nationalities. And they began to rotate through everybody's God. You know, we want to find the one that's offended, that's created this storm. And no doubt one of the gods, which is one of the gods in the, in the area around Israel, was the god of Baal, B-A-A-L, who was the god of weather and the god of storms. And in, in his right hand, he was pictured as having a thunder club, and in his left hand, he would have a lightning bolt. And so one of the gods that was prayed to was the god of Baal. And so they cry out to their god. And then it says, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship, they hurled it, into the sea to lighten it for them. You know, they wanted to lighten the load a little bit. They wanted to ride higher and not sink so low in the swells. But, you know, that tells us something about these guys in this storm because that was a radical, radical thing for them to do. You see, these were seasoned freight haulers. Their whole purpose for being was to take freight from one place to another and then back again. This tells us how desperate they were. This was their whole living. They were tossing overboards. They threw over the cargo. See, all of this happening, and then you come in verse 5 to the word but. We have known those big buts. But Jonah. What was he doing? He had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and had fallen asleep. I think we see here out of Jonah some passive indifference that happens when you begin to run from God. A self-focus. I see spiritual complacency here. 
I mean, think about everything that's going on. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't, you know, the size of an aircraft carrier. This was a boat, a rather large one, but think about what's going on. There's a horrifying storm. They're being tossed, twisted. The whole thing is creaking. The cargo, they had to haul it from the cargo holds out and throw it into the sea. All of that created all kinds of noise, and the crew was incredibly desperate. And what do we see out of Jonah? We see someone who's silent. And I think he was seeking to numb himself in his disobedience from God, and he was choosing to sleep, to sort of numb himself away. And sometimes that's what we do. I'd rather just sleep and not really think about what I'm doing. The problem with that, of course, is it only works temporarily because eventually you have to wake up. Eventually, you have to face the music. Eventually, you have to deal with the reckoning of the hound of heaven. We are Jonah. Men and women, we are an awful lot like him at times. And too often, I think we lose sight of really what's going on around us as we work our way through life. We lose sight of the fact that there are people. There are people in your neighborhood. There are people at school. There are people at your job who are experiencing incredible difficulty in their life. They are experiencing defeat and despair in their life. They are all around us every week. And those people that are experiencing that difficulty and that defeat and that despair are looking and hoping for someone who could calm their fears. They're looking for someone who could give them some hope. And Jonah has them all around. And yet what we see is incredible passive indifference on the part of Jonah. Now notice what goes on to happen here in uh, chapter 1 and verse 6. It, it's like, so the captain approached him. It's like everybody's in some kind of a panic, and then people say, there's a weird dude down there who's just sleeping. And so the captain comes up to Jonah, and he says, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Wake up. And one of the things I wonder, as I, as I look at the language of this, as I wonder, is Jonah really going to hear the voice behind the voice? Because when the captain says to him, get up, it's the exact same words from verse 2 when God said to Jonah, arise. Is he going to hear the voice behind the voice? Get up. Call on your God. And what is really interesting to me is Jonah's response. He remains passively indifferent. I mean, what an opportunity for him to step up and pray. You guys are in trouble? I know the God of the universe. Let me just pray for us right now. He doesn't do that. In fact, I imagine as, as the captain comes in and even you hear the voice of God being echoed by the captain, get up, call on your God. I just see Jonah probably simply kind of shrugging his shoulders, maybe staring at the, the wall of the ship, because, see, he is stubbornly still resisting the will of God. Does he have a big care about everybody else here? No. 
He's still into himself. But the hound of heaven, men and women, is not to be deterred. And what we're going to see is that God is going to use the wind and the waves. God is going to use the captain. God is going to use the sailors. God is even going to use the casting of lots as agents in his discipline and correction plan that Yahweh God has for Jonah. He'll use all the resources necessary to get his attention. And so we're seeing God's dogged pursuit of Jonah. And it's just important for us to remember something, and that is this, that men and women, when we sin, it's important to remember that God is more than willing to raise a storm in our life to expose that sin of ours. And he is more than willing, this is interesting, to use those around us to help bring us back to our senses and to bring us back to him. In other words, God will do and use any means possible to bring us back to our knees. Any means possible. And so you have verse 7. You notice there's no response, by the way, here to the call by the captain. You don't see anything out of Jonah at all. So they're continuing to move on, trying to find solutions. So each man says to his mate in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. And so they cast lots, and oh yeah, the lot fell on Jonah. And we can just see the Lord's hand behind all of this. Jonah's trying to run, and God's saying, as the hound of heaven, you're not going to get very far. I'm on your trail. And then you come to verse 8. And and verse 8, to me, there's a little bit of humor here. Uh, There's just this incredible barrage of questions. You know, they begin to make a circle around him after the lot fell on him, and they just pepper him with all these questions. Tell us now. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Uh, From what people are you? Boom, 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 boom. You know, he thinks he's getting away from God, but the hound of heaven's not going to let him go. And so you get all this barrage of questions coming at Jonah. But what is really fascinating is the response of Jonah to this because it really reveals his heart at the time. I want you to keep your finger here and go with me to Psalm 103. I want to garner a few thoughts from Psalm 103. But I want you to just notice what Jonah does not say. He gets peppered with these questions. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Why has this calamity struck us? What is your country? From what people are you? And notice what he does not say. He does not say, oh, 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 okay, guys, just hold on a minute here. Um, I want you to know about my God. This is a great opportunity for me to tell you about my God. My God is the God Yahweh. He is the God of personal relationships. And, and, and I want you to know about this God is a God whose mercy is new every morning. You need to learn about my God. He is the God who, as it says in Psalm 103, verse 8, who is compassionate and gracious. He is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
He's not always going to strive against us. He won't always keep his anger forever. He's not that kind of a God. In fact, he's the kind of a God, I'd like to introduce him to you, who has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my God's loving kindness towards those who fear him. In fact, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so this Lord, Yahweh God, has compassion on those who fear him. He could have said that. He didn't say that. In fact, his response to them is, is very terse. It's very humdrum there in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You know, God is at work, and it's like trying to pull teeth with Jonah. I mean, you got an incredible opportunity here, and he's self-focused in all of it. And so he says, yeah, you know, I'm a Hebrew, and I, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and, and the dry land. And they're hearing that, wait a minute, wait a minute, you, your God is the God who made the sea? I mean, that happens to be where we are, and we're in a pretty big pickle out here in the sea, and he made the dry land, that's where we want to go. And then they're thinking, wait a minute now, you have disobeyed this God? I mean, how are we going to survive an angry God who's the God of the sea when we're in a storm, the worst one we've ever seen on a ship? And so what you have, it says in verse 10, the men became extremely frightened. I mean, remember, these are rough, tough, seasoned sailors, perhaps the greatest group of them that you could ever put together. And at this point, now, finally, Jonah spills the beans. We learn that from verse 10. For it says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They become extremely frightened, and they say to him, verse 10, I find this very interesting. Here's the response to him. How could you do this? Let me give you the Bruce Hess translation of what they said. They said to him, are you nuts? Are you completely nuts? I mean, they were aghast. They were thinking, this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard. How foolhardy. Are you nuts? Are you totally nuts? Basically, they were saying, don't you know? This doesn't even add up. I mean, isn't it interesting? These people who do not know Yahweh God, and yet they are aware of the futility of trying to run from him. And what's really interesting to me is that even pagan people who do not know God personally can notice the gap that exists between what we claim to believe over here and our behavior over there. They can see that gap so clearly, and yet we somehow think we're going to fool people. See, it's one thing, men and women, to possess truth and to know truth. It's another entire different thing to live out the truth. And that's why we say as part of our mission is to shine as light in our homes and our community in the world. And L-I-G-H-T stands for the five different functions we are to have according to the New Testament. And the first one, L, stands for living out God's truth. It's not knowing about it, getting stuff into our head. It's knowing the truth and then living out the truth. 
It's one thing to possess it, to know it. It's another thing to live it out. Which brings us to a good moment for us just to pause for a moment. And and I think there's a question that would be good for us to ask ourselves right now. And that question would be, are we living consistent with what we believe about God? You know, if people were come to us and tell us and ask us, what do you believe about God? We might list a number of things. But are we living consistent with what we believe about God? Like we might say, well, I, I know that the Bible teaches that God is holy. Well, are we living consistent with that? Are we operating with purity in our speech in our everyday life? Are we operating with purity in our actions? Are we operating in purity with our thoughts? We believe God is holy, but are we living consistently with what we believe about him? We would also say that God is a God of truth. You can count on everything that he has to say. He's always straight up with us. And then we must ask the question, well, how am I living out my life? Am I honest in the way that I operate at school? Am I honest in the way that I'm operating at my job? Am I giving all of the effort I should for the compensation that I am receiving? You see, we need to be consistent and living out consistently with what we believe about God. We would say, well, God is a God of compassion. I mean, he is a God who loves people. He loves lost people. But are we living consistent with what we believe God to be? Would people say about us, that's a compassionate person. There's someone who loves people. There's someone who loves the lost around them. And by the way, one key measuring stick of that is our prayer life. Are we praying for people who don't know him? Well, we come down to verse 11, and they pose a question to Jonah. What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? And then it says, for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. I mean, it already was scaring them, and now it's getting worse. So in verse 12, he says to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. It's interesting, again, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know what we need to do? Here's what we need to do. We just need to, let's turn the ship back around and let's head back to Joppa so that I can fulfill the will of God in my life. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, ah, just toss me, toss me overboard. By the way, I think that is a very common kind of a perspective we can come to when we're in a downward plunge running from God. See, what happens when we do that, men and women, is we, we lose perspective as we are resisting and rebelling in the will of God. And, and, and it can come down to this. I mean, drowning is preferred to obeying the will of God. Not take me back to Joppa. I have a job to do. I'll just throw me overboard, toss me. Notice verse 13. You know, you're almost expecting them to all go, okay, get a hold of the guy, chuck him over the rail. I mean, let's get that done. But verse 13 starts differently. It says, however, the men rode desperately to return to land. Literally, in the original, it says, they dug their oars deep, 
trying to get back to land. And I just want you to notice here the compassion and the concern of the sailors. Do you notice that they have more compassion for one person, Jonah, than Jonah has for the tens of thousands of people in Nineveh, let alone all of these sailors that were on this ship? Interesting, isn't it? So, they dig their oars deep, desperately trying to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. It was getting worse. As they try to dig their oars deep to go back to land, the storm gets even worse, and it's almost like God was saying to everybody on this ship, the solution is not to try harder. Self-effort will not rescue you. It's almost as if God was communicating to them, your best efforts are doomed. It's almost as if God was saying, your only hope is going to be the death of another. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Self-effort won't rescue you. The solution is not to try harder. Your best efforts are doomed. Your only hope is the death of of another. So in verse 14, they called on the Lord Yahweh God and they said, we earnestly pray, O Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Yahweh God, have done as you have pleased. When I read that verse, I'm reminded of a of a phrase that comes up. It comes up in Joel 2.32, Acts 2.21, Romans 10.13, repeated three times in the Bible. And that phrase is this, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. What a great promise. And that's what we see them doing here. They're calling on the name of the Lord. And so in verse 15, as an act of faith, they pick up Jonah and throw him into the sea and notice it says the sea stopped its raging. Now again, we have to get in the middle of all of this. Jonah hits the water and the sea, boom, stops raging. Just try to imagine what that would be like. The worst storm you've ever seen that's been getting worse and worse and worse. They toss Jonah, he hits the water, boom. Just still. Reminds me of, of what happened in Mark chapter 4 and verse 39 when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. And remember, there was, there was the great storm. And at one point, Jesus just stands up and he says, Hush, be still. And phew, total still. Same kind of deal here. Jonah hits the water and phew, it's still. And then notice the response. It says, Then, verse 16, the men feared the Lord Yahweh greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. The vows were vows to serve and to honor Yahweh God in the future. We see deep gratitude out of the sailors, and we see genuine worship. Now what just jumps out at me in all of this is God's sovereignty 
Did you notice how God is sovereignly working even though he has a reluctant prophet, even though that reluctant prophet is on a downward spiral, even though that reluctant prophet is overcome by passive indifference, God is still at work. God is still reaching the lost. And it tells us about his heart. His heart is always extending mercy to those in the world who do not know him. Even when we are off course, he never stops working because that is his heart. Now, one of the things we suggested that you would do uh, over the week was to look at some comparison and some contrasting between Jonah and the sailors. And I just want us to notice some of those contrasts in this chapter. We see in this chapter Jonah not praying, but we see sailors praying. We see Jonah who claims to fear God, but we see sailors who respond with great fear towards the Lord. We see Jonah with little compassion for others. We see the sailors with active compassion for Jonah. We see Jonah who is unmoved over rebellion, and we see the sailors that are alarmed at rebellion. We see Jonah who prefers to persist in his rebellion, and we see the sailors who seek to address rebellion. We see Jonah who is disobedient, though he knew much about God. And we see the sailors who are obedient, though they knew very little about God. And we see Jonah who is running, not worshiping, and we see the sailors who are worshiping and sacrificing. See, men and women, we are Jonah. And there's lessons that God has for us, lessons aimed at our own hearts in this book. Now, what can we do, having looked at the majority of chapter 1, in terms of life response? How should we walk away from this portion of Scripture? And I'm going to suggest several life responses I think we ought to have. The first life response is to be alert I think we need to be alert to the symptoms of spiritual trouble in our life. That's part of what God wants us to learn. And there are a number of symptoms that we need to be alert to that we see in the life of Jonah. One symptom of spiritual trouble would be a lack of prayer. When there is a lack of prayer, it is a symptom of spiritual trouble. Even though it may not mean the middle of a storm yet, it's a symptom of trouble. Lack of sensitivity to sin in one's own life is a symptom of spiritual trouble. Not a good thing. We need to be alert to the symptoms of spiritual trouble. A lack of sensitivity to the consequences of sin. Sometimes we know, well, I, I know I shouldn't do that, but I think I, I want to do that anyway, but we forget there are consequences to those choices. A lack of sensitivity to the lives of those who are around us is a symptom of spiritual trouble. When we can just slam through our week and we're not even thinking about anybody else and what they may be going through. A lack of compassion for people is a symptom of spiritual trouble. And being disobedient to clear commands of God, that is a symptom of spiritual trouble. So one of the things we need to do is we need to be alert to the symptoms of spiritual trouble. The second life response I think we can have 
to this chapter is we need to be open. We need to be open. Remember, God desires to use you and me every day of every week as we shine as light. Be open to that. God wants to use you at work. God wants to use you at school. God wants to use you in your neighborhood. God wants to use you among your friends and acquaintances. And we need to be open to that. We just need to be thinking that way. We need to be alert to that. Think about all the opportunities that Jonah was missing because he'd closed down into passive indifference. And there may be opportunities that you have and I have every week, and if we're not open to them, we're not thinking along those lines, we're going to miss them. There'll be little clues dropped, there'll be statements made, and we miss the opportunity because we're not open to how God wants to use us to reach those around us. So, we need to be alert, we need to be open, and then the third life response is don't run. Don't run from the hound of heaven. He will do and use any means necessary to bring you to your knees. And I don't know what's going on in your spiritual life. But let me ask you this question. Is the hound of heaven pursuing you right now? Don't run. Don't run. If you are his disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, and you have been running, snap out of your passive indifference. We can do that by confessing to him that we have been where we shouldn't have been. And then to draw near to him. It says in the New Testament that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And so if there's this gap between you and him, we may need to confess some things and then we need to draw near freshly to him. Don't run from the hound of heaven. And if you are here or you are listening to me and you have never bowed your knee to the God of the universe, the person of Jesus Christ, my advice to you would be don't run. Your relationship with the living God can begin today. The struggle can end today. All the struggle that you have. The solution for your life is not to try harder. Self-effort will not rescue you. The only hope that you have is the only hope that I have, and that is the death of another. And that is why the message of the cross is the message for you if you do not know him. The fact that the God of the universe came to this planet to give up his life in your place on the cross. So that the guilt and the shame and the judgment that you deserve could be transferred to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've never bowed your knee to him, I want you to know that the cross is the way home to the arms of the Heavenly Father. And the hound of heaven called a young Russian college student in Stavropol 
years ago. And today, he's calling you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the book that is so alive, so real, and so potentially life-changing. And Father, I want to pray for anybody here who's a follower of Jesus, but they've been like Jonah, running and on a downward spiral, and I would pray today would be the day that they snap out of their passive indifference by confessing that they've been where they shouldn't have been, to receive fresh forgiveness from you and to draw near to you so that you can draw near to them. Pray that you'll deal with them right now, even as we're talking. And Father, for any who may be here who have never bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, may they realize that today is the day that the hound of heaven has been calling them to. The day that they open their arms up and to say, I want to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That is my only hope, the death of another, the death of Jesus Christ. The message of the cross is the message that I need. And then you simply will acknowledge to God your guilt and shame have been transferred to Christ. That's the way home to the arms of the Heavenly Father. And you can do that right where you sit, right at this very moment. Just talk to God about it. And let the hound of heaven introduce you to the most wonderful relationship in all of the world, and that is to know the living God. We pray that many might come to know the one whom to know is the greatest thing in all of this life. Thank you, God, for the way you're working. Thank you for your faithfulness to track us down. We need it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.